So we'll, the second half, we, um, we talk about the Dharma, which is the underpinning, the teachings of the Buddha, that is the underpinning of the uh, practice that we do, the meditation practice that we do. Because meditation is uh, three steps on what we call the Eightfold Path, which is the, the path that the Buddha talked about as the way to the ending of suffering. So there's meditation, but there's also wisdom and uh, morality. Wisdom being two of the eight steps and morality being three of them. So we'll talk about that in the form of questions and inquiry tonight. And now um, I'm really happy to entertain any questions you have about the practice, about the Dharma, about how the Dharma relates to your life. Um, and nothing, I love um, what Wendell Berry says, that there are no unsacred places, that there are only sacred places and desecrated places. So there is no question that you have that is outside of the Dharma. It's all sacred, whatever your questions are. Thank you. Um, you are? Ken. Ken. Yeah. I, uh, I come here quite often and I try to uh, practice even groups by myself. Uh, and I, I, I know this, I believe this. Did you say you try to practice in a group and with, by? With groups and by myself. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I go to other um, And I think in a way that's what I did here tonight, what we do is an end in itself. Meditating and focusing the mind, but I think uh, I always feel I'm missing something, and that is um, connection with this to something a more important objective. And I'm thinking of objectives like objectives like uh, I know that the goal of my practice is to encourage uh, compassion toward other living things, myself and other living things. And I know one of the goals of my practice is to try to envision myself as not really being a permanent self. It, it, it's always changing. It's not. It's not permanent and discrete. It's always. It's always like a process. And because I think of it as a process, then perhaps that will induce me to see how foolish it is to grasp things and to be jealous of things and always to want things. So the. the I think what I'm missing is the connections between what I do here tonight and those super objectives and other goals. I, I don't see how this, I think this is good in itself, but I don't see how it leads to those other things I mentioned. So you want to know how meditation works? Pardon? Do you want to know how meditation works? <laughs> I thought I did it tonight. <laughs> no, 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 how it works. How it works to... to um, effect transformation. Is that what you're asking? How it works to lead me to those other goals I mentioned. So wisdom and compassion. Wisdom and compassion and also the idea that myself is not permanent and separate mm-hmm. from other, other people. Mm-hmm. 
So you want to know how meditation works. <laughs> the missing links. The missing links. How long have you been practicing? Uh, for a few years, but not consistently. Sometimes I give it up. Uh-huh. I get discouraged. But recently I've been trying, the past couple of years, of trying uh-huh. more to be more consistent. Yeah. So have you ever been on a retreat, on a silent retreat? No, no. But I try to go to Dharma meetings about three times a week. And Always at New York Insider or at other no, centers? No, I'm here in other places too. Okay, so, and what other places do you go? I go to Tibet House in Shambhala. Mm-hmm. And then I try to do it by myself. I find it more difficult, but at least I try. Mm-hmm. But at least I, it's easier for me in the groups. So where do you think you're falling short? I think I'm falling short and not seeing the connection how this leads me to those further goals, to those, which I see as the main goals of Buddhism. So are you interested in seeing it and um, being able to think it through? Or are you interested in being able to see it work its way into your life? I'd like to know the intellectual connection. Ah. I'd like to know that. Mm-hmm. So, and you've been going to all of these different centers now for three years, right? And none of us have been able to help you with that. I just don't have a strong sense of it. Okay, yeah. No, that's fair. So, one of the things, one of the ways in which meditation actually makes those connections is intellectually. But I dare say, and maybe I'll be called a heretic for this because I think that that, uh, Buddhism has become a very kind of mental, in, in many corners and quarters of the world, it's become a very mental and intellectual exercise. And I think that there's a lot to be said for being able to reflect and think through uh, what you're doing. Of course, we're, we're intellectual beings, we are emotional beings, and we're physical beings. The issue, I think, is that the intellectual, especially in our, West, in our Western societies, have overtaken the emotional and the physical. And as in everything else, what's what's required is balance. So the way we realize these connections is not by thinking them through. We realize these connections and we actually sit in meditation for this very purpose the way we realize these connections is that we see in our own experience that everything is impermanent. We can, we can repeat to ourselves 150,000 times that everything is impermanent and it remains an idea out there. And maybe, you know, to some extent... We recognize it. We see, oh, time is going. Time is, everything is changing. 
But what happens is when our meditation is consistent and constant and in, one, in a way one-pointed, and what I mean by that is to make a choice, to make a choice of what uh, set of teachings you're going to follow. Because they all wind up, whatever streams, whether it's the Tibetan, Tibetan Vajrayana traditions or the Theravada tradition that we're in or uh, Zen Mahayana tradition or, or any combination of that, they all wind up in the same place at the basic teachings of the Buddha, which is the Four Noble Truths, right? And what, what are the Four Noble Truths? That there is suffering, that there's a cause of suffering, that there is an end to suffering, and there's a way to the end of suffering. But if we're all over the place, we, we learn a little bit, and then we start all over again. And we learn a little bit, and then we start all over again. And so we may have a lot of breath, but no depth. So where, how does the depth come? It comes from consistent one-pointed practice. And I don't mean narrow practice. I mean one-pointed practice. And the distinction between those two is that your practice becomes a practice that, that gets um, more and more refined and sharpened over time. And when that happens, the mind and the heart get steady and still. And, it, and they stay in the present moment. It, it's no longer always rushing into the future or falling back into the past. And when we're here, when we're actually present in an even, non-judgmental, accepting and embracing way, insight appears. That insight is not intellectual. That insight comes through the mind, body, and heart. And then when that insight comes, we know it for ourselves, not because a book has told us, not because a teacher has told us, because those, the, all those books and teachers are simply pointing at something. And in Zen they say, the finger pointing at the moon is not the, is not the moon. So when we point at the moon, it's for you to find the moon, for you to experience the moon yourself. My finger doesn't begin to teach you anything about the moon. It simply says, look there. So the looking there is your practice. When we're still, when we're silent, silent mind and heart, the still mind and heart sees deeply then our, our attention is not like a cork on the water, it's like a stone dropping into the water. And all of those connections that have been pointed to in all of the teachings that you've received begin to happen for you. So that's why I asked if you've been on a retreat, because if you've been practicing for a while, it's really helpful to see if you have the time. I don't know what your life is like. Sometimes some people can't do it for a while. But if you have the time and the inclination and the interest to find a retreat 
that's, you know, of several days or weeks or months, whatever you can afford, time-wise. Because that's what helped, that's what can broaden and deepen your practice so that when so that you get a you get a base of stillness and silence so that when you come home and you're adding a, a cumulative way of practice to that base it deepens and then the insight that we talk about is a, is a natural thing it's nothing that you have to force it's nothing that you have to seek it simply happens because the mind is still. And so it sees the nature of reality. It sees the truth. And from that seeing, wisdom and compassion arise. So when we see for ourselves that we are deeply connected to other beings, we don't have to try to be compassionate. Compassion arises. Because there's no difference between you and me so if I see you suffering I suffer it affects me I suffer with our relationship becomes different when I understand how connected I am to you your sadness is my sadness your joy is my joy And so meditation is a way of helping the mind to settle in that way so that it understands that in a deep, deep, deep body, emotion, mind way. So I'm not saying to stop reading, but I, you know, sometimes I'll say to a student, stop reading for a year, right? Because you've got all the information you need, the practice will get that information into a place of deeper understanding. Thank you. And I'm not saying that you only can be wise by retreats, right? But it really helps. Buddy? Yes. Uh, it's my understanding from a story I once heard that the Buddha offered the practice of metta as an antidote to fear to his uh, followers. And I'm kind of used to that to why fear. It's a loving kindness practice. Hmm. So do you know the actual story? Not the whole, that's basically what I know of it. Okay. So I'll tell you the story. So cuddle up. I'll give you some milk and cookies, and I'll tell you the story. So the the Buddha, the Buddha, as you know, as you may know, um, practiced mostly in in you know in, in the twenty five hundred years ago when there were actually jungles and um, wild places that were still preserved naturally. And uh, the monks, his monks went out into the forest. He sent them out into the forest to meditate. And if you 
have ever read the Satipatthana Sutta, you know that he always, he directed in his mindfulness instructions that you go to the root of a tree or to an empty hut and you put your, cross your legs and you put your breath in front of you and you pay attention, right? So he told them to do that, find a, go to the root of a tree and meditate. And when they went, there were all kinds of spirits in the forest and wild animals and they got scared and they went running back to the Buddha and said oh we can't we can't meditate there that's it's too scary there are all of these tree spirits and animal spirits and all kinds of spirits and they're scary things and he said I will give you um, the, all the protection that you need to meditate with these spirits and that's when he taught them metta, loving kindness. So what do you think? Why do you think he did that? Why do you, what, what would, what could possibly, how could that possibly protect them? The first thing that comes to mind is uh, a sense of self-care because in the practice you start with whether you're repeating phrases or general feeling of may I be peaceful, may I be at ease. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, I guess as a, as a way of self-care and then maybe extending that further out to even the scary spirits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... When have you ever had an experience where someone was really scary to you and then you became friendly with that person and then you realized that they weren't so scary after all? Is that true? Yeah? Can you tell me the story? Mm-hmm. And then once I got to know them, I, mm-hmm. I realized that those uh, judgments and those preconceptions were wrong. Mm-hmm. And I saw a different, I guess I saw the type of humanity mm-hmm. in them that made mm-hmm. it feel more connected and safer. Mm-hmm. So when you were scared of that person, did you love them or did you hate them? And hate, I use I use hate because I just I just like to use that word because I think that it really describes that feeling of aversion that we have that can be so deep. So did you did you love that person when you scared were scared of them or did you have aversion towards them? Aversion. Right. So so in a way we're you know also responding to the first question about transformation and how these practices transform us and how, how they, these practices lead to compassion or wisdom, that our hearts are transformed. And when our hearts are transformed, everything appears different. So if, we, if, we're, if we're feeling aversion towards someone, a lot of the time 
there's fear contained in that aversion. And it's, uh, fear is kind of the um, imploding way of aversion. And hatred or anger is the, imp- it's the exploding way of aversion. So there are two kinds of aversion. So this aver- if there's aversion that's imploding, that's manifesting as fear, then of course kindness or love will be the antidote to it. Right? Because love is an antidote to aversion. Right? It's the, it's the uh, far enemy of hatred. So it's a really kind of amazing wisdom that the Buddha exercised, I think, in seeing the subtlety of the emotion of fear and all of the components of it and that what was necessary was not his saying, oh, don't be silly, right? You know, there are no spirits in that jungle or the spirits are friendly, what are you worried about? He didn't say that. He said, transform your own heart because what, what really makes the world is not what's out there, but what's in here. With our minds, we make the world. That's the first saying in the Dhammapada, the first saying of the Buddha. And when we talk about mind in in the Dharma, we're talking about mind-heart. So with our mind-heart, we make the world. So if the world appears scary, we look inside. We don't try to make the world not scary because good luck with that right but when we when we transform our own hearts then we see the world differently is that helpful yeah good you're welcome I just have a question about instinct and how does instinct play in there because what's your name first could you take the mic and what's your name Richard mm-hmm What was scary about them? So that's a really great question. Thank you. So I'm wondering if... Um, so you're saying that there's an objective reality out there that has nothing to do with how I'm relating to it. Um, I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I know, I know. I'm not... I'm, but, I'm, but I want to inquire with you because I think it's a good question. So let's, you know, I don't have an answer. So I'm just trying to inquire with you. So 
so are we saying that there's, there's this objective world out there that has absolutely, you know, that is separate from me, that is not dependent on my state of heart or mind, but is just objectively either scary or not scary? Do you think? Well, but I'm asking, but I'm asking a slightly, um, I'm not accusing you of judgment. Right? Yeah, so it's not, I'm not really talking about judgment per se, but really looking at what what my relationship is to that, quote, scary or, quote, violent person. And we're not talking yet about uh, how we protect ourselves or what's safe or what's not safe. We're simply talking about the relationship between the loving heart and fear, right? So, so that's one aspect. And then there's a second aspect, which is, you know, what makes us safe? What makes us feel safe and what makes us actually safe? And are there, is there a difference between objective safety and subjective safety? And again, I don't have any answers. I'm just riffing with you. Is there an objective safety and is, there a, and is there a subjective safety? And what's the difference between the two? And what is the relationship between the two? Because some, a situation can be objectively difficult or unsafe. And our relationship to it can make the difference on, in how it turns out. So for instance... Thich Nhat Hanh talks about when the people in the boats from, were coming in the boats from Vietnam, they would run into rough seas, right? So, so objectively, seas are rough, no question about it. The boats that actually did not capsize, many of them did. The boats that actually did not capsize was testified to by the people who survived is that there is usually one person in that boat whose mind and heart were um, balanced or still, who were able then to calm the rest of the people in the boat. So there's an objective difficulty or unsafety. And, you know, we can't deny that. And yet, there is a way in which we can protect our own hearts by the way they relate to or respond to that situation of difficulty or that situation of unsafety. I was mom a few years ago. Mm-hmm. There were some people who were walking maybe a little too close to me, and they said that I was in danger. I was mm-hmm. saying to myself, just breathe, relax. Mm-hmm. You're creating this. You're It would have been much smarter to take a piece of stick and lovingly hit them over the head. I had a folding rice cakes at the time. I was 
So nobody's saying that, right? It's not, it's not a question of ignoring your instincts or putting yourself in some in danger because you don't do what's necessary. So we're always talking about appropriate response. If we're reactive to the situation, we're probably going to make it worse, right? If we're responsive to the situation, we might help it. And there are some situations that are dangerous, yes, right? But what is your relationship to it? That's, you, you may not have control over the dangerous situation presenting itself, but you have control, some control, over how your heart responds, how your mind responds, and what needs to be done in the particular situation. So it's not a question of, oh, oh, may you be happy, may you be happy while you're killing me. You know, it's not that. No, it's, it's not that at all. No, we all want to survive. But what are we willing to do? What are we willing to not do? And what is our state of heart when we're doing it, whatever we're doing? Right? You're welcome. The teachings are impermanent. What's your name? Basia. Gracia? No, no, Basia. Basia. Yeah. Okay. Like, I hear them from you, I hear them from other teachers, I've read books for some reason. The practice and the way that the breath and the way the presencing and um, the heart and mind are transformed through the practice has been deepening and deepening, and my life has been transformed. And I guess my question just is Talk to Tim, would you? Yeah, no, I, I, I was going to question after. Uh, that's like the opposite question. It's like I have a hard time with actually landing on the teachings, and the, they don't stick. They don't stick to me. Like when when you say that, what do you mean? Like, um, I even today, like the four noble truths, I heard them a hundred million times. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what they are. I'm like, I should. I mean, I've been practicing for years and years and years, and, and somehow like. I'm still not, like, super connected to... Is it okay? For me, it's okay, but I'm wondering, as a teacher, as a, as a student, is there, I'm just wondering, I, and I also have not so much ambition with mm-hmm. my practice, like, I'm mm. just really happy doing what I'm doing, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I notice the benefits, and I'm just, as, as a student, I'm, re- I'm realizing that there's, that there's a complacency that might be, like, slightly lazy, or maybe there's something that I'm not reaching for that should be a next step in my practice, but I'm not taking it. Mm-hmm. So what can I do for you? <laughs> I love your questions. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I guess the question is, I mean, I mean, you, you, know, you don't know me well enough to, say, to give me the answer on a personal level. Even if I did, I probably wouldn't give you the answer. <laughs> You know, and I'm being playful, but I'm I'm also being really serious because everybody learns differently. Everybody learns differently. 
So that's one part of the inquiry that you're doing is, oh, maybe the way I learn is different. Maybe I don't need to know what the Four Noble Truths are, but I can see that my suffering is lessening in my life. And that's fine for you. And that's okay. Right? Yeah, I'm like, I'm ambitious about so many things. I'm like so worried about not being ambitious about like Okay, so, but that's a separate question. That's not the same question. Okay, so how about an answer for that? So, so you have the answer to that. No, it's, so the answer to it, in, in, in a way, even though I'm not giving answers, is energy. You know, what's your state of energy? And is there some part of your life where you do give the required energy? And when I say required, required from your point of view. You know, is there some part of your life where you do give the required energy? Well, what's that? Okay, so that's really important to you. So can your music be part of your dharma, and can your dharma be part of your music? Is it? Hey, voila! <laughs> no, serious, no, no, because, you know, we, we have a certain amount of energy to give to our lives, Right. And how we, how we um, choose to spend our energy is up to us. It's not up to what some teacher tells you you should be doing, right? But it's, it's really about what you think is important to you, what you think brings you happiness and joy, what you think brings you wisdom and love, and not some model of who you think you ought to be as a Dharma student. Right. Well, I guess that the, 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 you've kind of nailed it when you think of... When, when you hear Thank you. <laughs> when, you. When you hear the word Dharma student, so much about being a Dharma student is finding a teacher, and there's a relationship between... I mean, I read a Pima show, and you go back, and, you know, all those, you know, you know the, the people who I do it, I don't remember a word of what they said. <laughs> but they're great teachers. But they're great teachers. <laughs> You know, I guess that's part of like the question is is that something that's important to really like have your teacher? You know what I'm saying? Is it important to you? I guess I would want to. I want. I would want to have a reflection at some point to see if there was. There, I mean, it's always there's always there's always room for growth, and there's always desire for growth. So there's always this idea or notion that through that kind of relationship, a certain type of growth possible that you haven't reached without knowing what that is, you can't even project that. So it's maybe an idea in my head, but that's... Um, hmm. So when it becomes a heart's desire, if it ever does, then you look for a teacher. But you don't have to force yourself. Maybe at some point your practice in your practice you'll say... You know, I have some really deep questions about my life and myself and my and my place in this world. Those questions I do have. 
Mm -hmm. How do you answer them? What? How do you go about seeking an answer? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, there are a lot of different ways. I mean, there's Beautiful. I mean, meditation is one part of practice. Beautiful. Therapy, friendships. Beautiful. You know, nature. Go for it. <laughs> Seriously. Really. You know, live your life fully. Live your life fully. And it doesn't have to look like anybody else's life. And your practice doesn't have to look like anybody else's practice. Your practice really um, should be informing you of what's next. What's What's the next step in front of you? What's the next step in front of you? Nothing has to be forced. Nothing has to be to look a particular way. Nothing has to be a particular way. We're just here right now. How is it to be here right now? And what does it mean to be here right now? And what is my next step? How do I express kindness? How do I express wisdom in my life? What's necessary for that to be as full as it possibly can be? What's next? What's next? Not what's going to happen in five years or what's going to happen when I have a teacher or because I don't have a teacher or what does it mean about me that I'm lazy because I blah, blah, blah. What's happening now? What's necessary now? What's needed now? Who am I right here? The nights and days are relentlessly passing. How am I spending my time? And if we're asking that question, then when the answers come, we know what we need to do. And it's not what anybody else needs to do. It's what you need to do. Hi, Ben. Hi. Um, so I, I may have the, um, the opposite problem, but I think it goes um, along the lines of a lot of things you've been talking about today, which is that uh, I feel, and I felt for a long time, that um, uh, the work situation I've gotten myself into is not a great uh, fit for a number of reasons. There's some mistrust. There's um, some just, you know, dysfunctionality. Um, and the more that I'm in it, um, I realize also that there's a lot of reaction coming from me sort of as a result of these things that, that I'm um, reacting to, this feeling of injustice, this feeling of futility. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot uh, to learn there. You think mm-hmm. There's a lot to just sort of kind of grin and, 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 and bear or, or mm-hmm. to... Um, uh, not to not to react to by leaving by uh, and and I guess I just it, going to the back to the point about meta I just I just sort of wonder whether um, the Buddha would tell these people as long as you believe in the process uh, you know go straight out to that jungle or if he was sort of like well you need to build up a certain stock of meta before you are going to face a hungry tiger. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he said about that. But I do know that if you're in a situation where you feel it's deadening to your spirit or to your soul, which you didn't say, but I kind of got, um, 
that it might be time for a new situation. If you feel as if there is nothing that you can do to change the dynamic. So I'm wondering, because you, and the reason that I picked that up is because you said something about grinning and bearing it, which is like, ding dong, red flag, do-do, right? Because uh, if you're sitting there kind of tense and grinning and bearing it, I don't, you know, I don't know what your other situation is and what, you know, what your whole situation is, but if you feel as if you're grinning and bearing something, how does that feel? Is there a lot of suffering in that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, so, so, but at the same time, it feels though, um, today, for example, there was sort of a, uh, we're doing a lot of process overhaul uh, which is as fun as it sounds, and um, there was sort of this one disagreement I had with this this uh, guy who's implementing a lot of it. Sort of an honest disagreement, but um, but I found myself sort of in that position where like everyone's laughing and you're kind of like making this uh, horrible face at, at people, um, and no one ever wants it. You know, you you always know sort of abstractly like you never want to be uh, uh, not laughing and having a little laugh with you, but, but and, and you know, there, there are lots of times where I feel like balance where I'm able to kind of have a sense of humor about a situation, but so, perfect example of like a, a point of which um, I see that if I was sort of larger uh, in my consciousness, I could, uh, uh, I could adapt to that situation, but there's a certain amount, there's a, there's a point of incompatibility and there's a point of personal sort of insufficiency there, and, and I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering is, is is this sort of a learning opportunity that I'm not um, embracing and that there's sort of a, a, a tightening there sort of prematurely or is, or is it, um, you know, a strong sign that I need to swim away? I don't know. Seriously, I don't know. I don't know enough about your situation and about you and all of that to really say that. But you can certainly do the reflection yourself, right? Really pay attention to what you feel inside. So, so if you're paying attention to whatever the feelings are physically and emotionally, but really paying, I'm, I'm not saying just, oh, I'm sad, or I'm, but really, what's it like when you know, a situation like that comes up? What does your stomach feel like? I, you know, I can bet you that if, if you really pay attention to your stomach, you'll feel acid you know, coursing through it. So when you start to feel what you know, those emotions and those sensations that are leading you to feel as if you're grinning and bearing it, then you will get the answer yourself as to what needs to be done, as to whether there, it's a learning situation or a situation where you've come to the end of your learning there. And sometimes... You know, we don't need to learn certain things. We don't have to stay in a situation that's cruel or, um, or that's crushing or oppressive or in unjust because there's nothing to learn from it sometimes. Yeah, there's always something to learn from how we're relating to whatever is happening but sometimes we don't need to put ourselves in the most difficult of situations in order to learn. And sometimes what we learn is how to really 
take care of ourselves. Right? So it's a, it's a kind of balance that, you know, only you can know. Only you can know. But I, I think your inquiry, you know, just asking the question is a beautiful thing. Because you're really looking to, to see exactly that. Where is, where's the tipping point? You know, where's the place where, you know, it tips in favor of this or in favor of, or it tips in favor of that? And at what point do I say, I surrender, or I give up? You, you know, either, either way. I surrender to the situation as it is, and I'm going to work through it, or I give up, I can't work with the situation, is what I mean. But only you would know that. And it really depends on how strong your practice is, and whether or not you think that bearing or enduring a situation, the, the, the suffering of it is the kind of suffering that the Buddha talked about as the suffering that ends suffering or is the kind of suffering that produces more suffering, right? So the kind of suffering that ends suffering is the kind of suffering where you can learn something from it. You can learn something from your own reactivity and your own internal process with it. And then there's the kind of suffering where it's just not the situation for you to be in, right? So you have to um, pay attention in order to make that kind of discrimination. It's, it really requires very keen and refined attention. But what one thing I do know is you don't have to suffer needlessly just so you can learn because there's enough suffering in this world for learning wherever you go. So you don't have to put yourself in situations that are excess suffering in order to learn. Do you know what I mean? You're welcome. So I'm going to read you a poem before we go. That's the last question. It's called How to Be a Poet, and it's one of my favorite poems that I got reminded of the other night because as watching an interview between Bill Moyers and Wendell Berry, and uh, what a beautiful being he is. And it's called How to Be a Poet, and the subtitle is, in parentheses, To Remind Myself. One, make a place to sit down. Sit down. Be quiet. You must depend upon affection, reading, knowledge, skill. More of each than you have. Inspiration, work, growing older, patience. For patience joins time to eternity. Any readers who like your poems doubt their judgment. Two, breathe with unconditional breath, the unconditioned air. Shun electric wire. Good luck with that in New York City. Communicate slowly. Live a three-dimensioned life. Stay away from screens. Stay away from anything that obscures the place it's in. Ooh, I just lost it. Sorry, just a second. I 
I guess that's all you were meant to see because I just lost it and I can't get it back. No, it won't, it won't move. Anyway, that the the uh, the quote that I gave you this, that I said this this before we uh, discussed the questions was there are no unsacred places, only sacred places and desecrated places. I really wanted to get to that line because in your life everything is sacred, everything that you do, everything that you are everywhere that you are is sacred and it all has to do with your own inner work your heart that great heart of love and wisdom and compassion that won't change every external situation that's for sure but will certainly help you to live through whatever difficulties are your share of the sorrows of the world with a sense of kindness and a, and a, an intuitive ocean of wisdom that will serve you very, very deeply and very well. So I wish you the realization of your sacredness. Thank you so much. Let's dedicate the merit of our practice. Having reflected on the Dharma and practiced so beautifully together, we've created a field of goodness and of merit. And we take that field of goodness and merit and we cast it out into the world so that it will bless every being, that all beings will be happy and peaceful, safe from harm, healthy and strong, and live with ease. All beings will be completely free in their hearts, their minds, and in their bodies. Thank you so much for coming. Good night.